Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I think what this moment is reminding us of is we have much less control over the outside world than we imagine, but we have much more control over our own world than we suspect. Hi everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. In these overwhelming times, it's urgent to slow down and relish in being still. In this episode, I talk with Pico Iyer from his Kyoto home. He's the author of The Art of Stillness, revered by The New Yorker as a spiritual and intellectual adventurer. His four TED Talks have been watched more than 10 million times for his reflections on what he calls our inner world. Join us. I thought that in these crazy times where... Um, in a sense, uh, you know, our cities are still our homes, are at times still our economies are still our minds and our hearts, though, are anything but for the most part um, still. And as we're even more confined in spaces and places like New Zealand, Australia, New York, where we are under whatever you call it, lockdown or shelter in place or however people are describing it. There's this shared sense of going nowhere, going nowhereness, which is another phrase that Pico uh, you have used. So it's an exceptionally rare opportunity uh, for stillness, and I wanted to uh, start by asking, I guess, opening it up, Pico. In amongst all of this, um, what have you been reflecting on, and what have you been seeing as this all unfolds with regards to? I guess, this whole idea of being still. Yes, and before um, I say anything, I'm just so delighted uh, to, to be talking to you. And this is a beautiful fruit of this curious moment that you and I get to talk without ever having met in person across 2,000 miles or however far it is and join in a larger conversation. And I think what I've noticed and the reason that I wrote that book and then gave a TED talk about stillness was that for the last 10 years, I'm sure you've had the same experience, all my friends have been saying, I don't have time. My life's out of control. I wish I could spend more time with my family. I'm on this roller coaster 
I never wanted to get on and now I don't know how to get off it. And the world is accelerating at the pace determined by machines. And I suppose my feeling was that humans can't live it at a pace determined by machines un unless we want to become machines ourselves, which none of us do. And that the more we've been trying to keep up with the moment, the more we've been falling behind. So I, I keep on hearing in the last 15 years, people are overwhelmed. They have more data coming in than they know what to do with. And they've lost the chance to think about what they really care about. And so in this curious, unsought moment, suddenly we've been forced to stop. And I think everybody who's part of this conversation, everyone around the world is most thinking about the people who are undefended, who don't have a roof over their heads, who don't have a job to go back to, who don't have resources, or who are sick. And that's clearly the first priority. But for some of us, like maybe some in this conversation who may be able to come out of this relatively intact, I think this gives us a wonderful opportunity. First, to remember what really sustains us. Is racing around doing 16 things at once really going to make us happier, clearer, or more productive? Or is taking a deep breath and stepping away from the world so as better to know how to go back into it the best way? To, to advance. You know, many people have always thought that we advance by taking retreat. And in some ways, this is an enforced retreat. And of course, I, as you know, I say in my book quite early on, nobody wants to be in a forced position of stillness. None of us wants to be imprisoned or an invalid or, or, or stuck in one place forever against our will. But now and then, um, as a way to reboot and, and reminding us not to take too much to, for granted, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, because you say in your book, you know, going nowhere is the grand adventure that makes sense of everything else. I can remember if that's something that you say or something else, someone else you quoted. But is this some sort of twisted prize of this quarantine? Like for those of us who aren't at the front lines, aren't, you know, really at the, um, the coalface of the, the, the trauma and the pain, is this some sort of uh, bonus booby prize that we should be forced into this uh, scenario? It's maybe a secret prize, secret treasure. I remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up in England, we had to learn Shakespeare. And we, we read there, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. If you listen to the Dalai Lama, whom I've been traveling with for 45 years, he says exactly the same thing. In Paradise Lost, there's this famous line, the mind is its own place that can make a hell of heaven or heaven of hell. So... I think what this moment is reminding us of is we have much less control over the outside world than we imagine, but we have much more control over our own world than we suspect. And to that degree, it's up to us whether to see this just in terms of pain and frustration and inconvenience or opportunity. Um, I remember, for example, my, I was once in my family home in California some years ago, and I saw this distant line of orange cutting through a hillside. I went to call the fire department, and the next minute, our whole house was encircled by 70-foot flames, and our house and every last thing in it except for me got wiped out by a forest fire, which, if you'd told that to me, I just said, that's the worst thing that could happen. There goes everything. But after maybe a year of adjustment, I noticed that that forest fire actually offered me opportunity to live much more likely. I didn't need to replace most of the things I'd lost. I could start spending much more time in Japan, which I loved now that I didn't have a physical home in California. I'd lost all my handwritten notes, but as a writer, that meant I could try fiction instead of nonfiction. And so one way or another, this fire, which seems like such a trauma, actually was an opportunity as much. And I think that's the case as you said, for those of us not in the front lines and not deeply vulnerable right now. 
Um, because some of something in us has been crying out for this for quite a while. And I've heard this sentence so much, I need a break. You know, I'm, I'm a full-time journalist and I've never used a cell phone. And when, when I say that to friends, say, oh, I wish I could be like that. Well, we're still using our cell phones more than ever now, probably, most people. But this is an equivalent of, this is the freedom you've said you wanted, um, where you don't have to multitask. You don't have to be racing from 2 p.m. appointment to 6 p.m. appointment to pharmacy on the other side of town. Um, make the most of it. You can't, you, I, I wrote a book last year about living with mortality and uncertainty uh, here in Japan. And because Japan's been living with suffering for a long time, I think the thing they've learned most of all is you can't argue with reality. That's a, that's a battle you'll always lose. What you have to do is make friends with reality and, and, and get on the same side as it. And then you can work together to produce possibility. Um, and so this has really dramatically brought that home to all of us, I think. You know, people living in their homes now, working in their homes, trying to create a sense of separation or stillness, but being kind of, in a way, more cramped, more crowded. Um, there could be, or there is a risk of blurring, you know, work uh, and the family and the daily tasks and the lack of separation. How do you manage in your own home to delineate those things so that people who are now for the first time trying to manage this whole environment that they have protected as their home now blurs into everything via Zoom and all the other things that are going on in the world. You know, to some extent, I think we've all been blurring those distinctions for a long time. Um, most, many of my colleagues send me emails over the weekend. They work from home, even in the best of times. Um, while they're at the dinner table with their um, kids and wife, they're saying, oh, sorry, I've got to take this, or, you know, all kinds of things are coming in on them. So I think we've been facing that danger for a long time. Um, and when you say about people trying to create a sense of separateness, the first thing that came to me is, so many people now are trying to create a sense of community. That's what you're doing right now with this broadcast, which we wouldn't have thought of maybe three months from now. And, and, and actually, I think our sense of community is quickened by this moment. Um, in my case, I'm strict with my schedule. So I begin my first eight hours of every day, but now included um, at my desk. And then I tell my wife, currently, I'll be free at 3 p.m. and I'm all yours. And like you and everybody listening to this, we've been taking walks around our neighborhood recently. We've been in the same neighborhood for 27 and a half years. But just three nights ago, uh, we took a street we hadn't taken before. And in five minutes, we came to this extraordinary bamboo forest with avenues of cherry blossoms lined up in front of it. Nightingales singing, teaching their young to sing. This beautiful place, five minutes from our flat, we'd never seen for 27 and a half years, which a tiny indication of the way this necessity is forcing us to really useful adventure and to discovering the treasures all around us. Um, in terms of separating ourselves, you know, our, our working lives from our true lives, I've always felt that that's up to us. In other words, so many people complain about information overload these days. And I say, the problem's not in the machines, it's in us. And it's in our inability to turn away from our machines or turn the machines off. But the machines, of course, are just neutral instruments. And it's up to us to make wise and discerning use of them. And that's the case usually, and certainly um, the case now. And I, I've often had the experience um, <laughs> of meeting kids, let's say teenagers, and they'll come up to me and they'll say, my parents took me on a cruise ship and we couldn't get 
on connectivity there. And the first day of that trip was the worst day of my life. I couldn't email my friends or Instagram or, or talk on the phone. And the second day was the second worst day of my life. And the week was the best week of my life. It always takes a little while to adjust. But once we're adjusted, they're suddenly realizing how wonderful it is to be liberated from some of these things to which we've got mindlessly addicted that are not making us happier and stronger and richer, but depleting us in every way. When I was 29, I, I, I was living, I was working in Midtown Manhattan with a 25th floor office and very stimulating life. But I thought, am I really positioned with close to the things that are most important to me? And so I left that for a backstreet single room in, in Kyoto, Japan, no toilet of my own, no telephone of my own, no visible bed. And one reason I did that was as soon as I arrived in Japan, away from the congestion and distraction of New York City, I thought every day is going to last a thousand hours. I won't have as much money as I had before, but I will have more time. And I will have the luxury of waking up and seeing that there are endless time for doing everything I wanted. And I never had that sensation in New York. And I'm sure people in Auckland and Sydney and London feel um, feel the same. So as you rightly point out, we all have to make a living, but our living is only as good as the life we make. And the life we make comes not from being tethered to the office and taking care of our work emails, but being with our friends, our family, meeting a new friend as you and I are doing right now. Um, and I'm, I, I've noticed in the last three weeks, my friends have been sending very long emails, people I haven't heard from, ye from years have written to me or Skyped me. And in a curious way, the whole world is in this moment together. And I think the sense of community and a certain kind of equality is stronger than it often has been. Uh, and when I think of what were we doing two and a half months ago, many of my friends were following Meghan and Harry's voyage across <laughs> the Atlantic Ocean, fuming over the latest tweet from the White House, wondering about the Kardashians uh, and thinking about whether Brad Pitt was going to get together again with Jennifer Aniston. Now we're thinking about life, death, what we care about, all the questions you're raising. I think that's a progression. So you, I've read somewhere that you don't actually meditate, even though, you know, lots of people you are friends with obviously do. And you talk about stillness and quiet and you write, obviously, every day. Um, do you think that the ordinary person who's not a writer, not a journalist, could use writing as a daily tool, as a daily habit to write through our thoughts, to access a pool of, of that kind of stillness or quiet? Do you find it therapeutic for yourself? And do you think that that's a tool that people should be thinking about right now? I, I happen to find it fantastically therapeutic. And as a writer, I don't really care what happens to my writing, whether it goes out into the world or not. The main thing is it gives me the luxury of processing my experience, understanding the people around me, taking a break. Every morning when I go to my desk in that commute you describe, it feels like stepping out of the congested city street into a cabin in the woods where I get a chance to spend just time thinking about what's really on my mind and getting it out of me. So for me, it's very helpful. But I think for other people making music or sketching or reading or just being quiet for 20 minutes at the beginning of the day. And what I noticed again a few years ago was that many of us now go to a health club every day and we do 30 minutes on the treadmill or weight training or whatever it is to make our bodies strong. 
but we won't give that time to making our minds and hearts and spirits strong, which is much more important to us. So if you have 30 minutes to take a run every day or to go to the health club, surely you have 30 minutes to sit quietly without your devices, maybe write if it's a way of getting your thoughts out and clarifying them to yourself. It's for me very free therapy and it's kind of layman's meditation. It's a meditation without all the, the hard work and discipline. But it may take another form. My wife has begun playing the piano every day for a few minutes, but it releases something in her that usually she wouldn't have the chance to release. So, um, so I think, again, life is giving us an opportunity now not to be getting back into control that ratio of experience to reflection. Recently, I think many of us have had too much experience and not enough time to reflect on it. And mm-hmm. now suddenly we've realized, well, wait a minute, I can actually live a little better without trying to cram 16 movements across town into my day. Well, what I've noticed amongst friends, at least here in Auckland, is a lot more cooking is taking place, reflective, therapeutic. Um, it's, a, it's an experience, really. And if you're learning to cook, it's also an educational. It's, I mean, it's also a gift when you're cooking for people. Uh, gardening, because it's still, you know, it's still, this, uh, the weather here is not, it's still quite good, actually, in Auckland. And, connecting with nature and spending time in the garden and these kinds of activities and pastimes that I think maybe people have overrun in the past where it's easier to choose not to do those things. So I think these are naturally occurring uh, if people have the ability to do those. If you're living in an apartment, obviously that's not, you know, something that's going to happen. So these are activities and pastimes. Um, One of the things that we were talking about was what's the opportunity to rethink what, we might want to see in the world going forward when we are back into or when things are released and when the world is um, moving back to where it was. What would you wish to see in terms of where people could go? I think the two things we can really get in this moment are a sense of priorities, which we lose when we're moving around too much, and a sense of perspective. Um, And whatever the nature of your life is, in recent years, we've all been aware that people almost boast about how busy they are, even though we know that people who are busy are seldom very wise, and people who are wise are seldom too busy, and people who are busy are also seldom very happy and seldom very kind. And I find my happiest moments come when I'm really, really absorbed in something, and my least happy moments are when I'm all over the place and distracted, as it were. So this moment of kind of enforced absorption might remind us how we can best do justice to our business as well as our family and every other aspect of our lives. Um, I know you're in in the business world and I'm often in Silicon Valley, for example, where the companies have really figured this out. I have a friend at Google who, in a normal run of things, he makes appointments with himself every week Mm -hmm. because he figures only if he can spend, let's say, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. every Tuesday by himself, which means going for a walk, thinking something through, just resting, Only by doing that does he have something to bring to the rest of his appointments. And that's why those companies give their employees 20% of their paid time free, because that's going to make their work more productive. Um, How do we not lose that? I mean, that's partly to do with paying. It's it's about attention, right? Paying attention to different things. How do we maintain that or build rhythm now when we've got this sense of spaciousness, but also going forward? Uh, when we are maybe swamped or taken back into the slipstream of, of when things move towards normal, normal. 
I would say build a new rhythm in the light of what you've discovered. From this, I, right now, we're all going to a new country that most of us have never been to before. And like every new country, it's full of challenges and shocks. But there are certain things you think, oh, I like the way they do things here in Italy or California or wherever. Why don't I take that back into my life in Auckland or Japan? And so there are certain things that we notice that make us richer, more wide awake, more attentive in this moment. And I think we can build a new rhythm in which we do that. For example, I have, like everybody, little rules for myself. I never go online for two hours before I sleep because if I, if I do, I, my sleep is much worse and I wake up very jangled. I try to go as long as possible after I wake up without going online or checking my messages. And of course, many people's jobs don't allow that. But within the parameters of your job, there's more scope for, I have friends who, when they drive to the office every morning to address this, they'll go 20 minutes early and then they'll just sit in their car for 20 minutes, which sounds boring, but actually it's the way they prepare themselves for everything that's going to follow. They've built in that quiet time into their very unquiet days. So a um, long time ago, because I'm a busy journalist, I got into the habit, every three months I go on retreat to a Benedictine monastery for three days. And they're always, I'm not a Christian, there are always a million reasons not to go, but I go there the same way I take my car in to have its tires realigned and an oil check every few months. It's my oil check. And after the three days of just silence, I come back so much more energetic, joyful, refreshed, and knowing exactly what to do in the next three months. And if I didn't take that break, I'd be just in a chaos fighting my way blindly through those months. Mm -hmm. So I think it behooves every one of us to make those little spaces in the day. And if we haven't had enough of them before, this moment is reminding us how precious they are mm -hmm. and that we can make them. Nobody is too busy to do that. Um, you know, I travel every year across uh, the Japan with the Dalai Lama, who's I think one of the most overburdened people on the planet. He spends four hours every morning before 8.30 when his day begins meditating. So I figure, well, if the Dalai Lama, his spiritual and temporal leader of Tibetans, responsible for 14 million people, can spend four hours, I can probably spend 20 minutes. Um, and I think if you're a CEO or a, a busy mother or whoever you are, most of us who are not in war zones and not living on the streets have that more chance than we know just mm -hmm. to make, and we will always feel the better for it. And as I say, if you can spend 30 minutes in a health club, 30 minutes in a mental health club is not wasted. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good idea. The gym for the mind. How do yeah. you, you know, you're, you're the, the luxury of the, the Benedictine monk, I guess, pilgrimage that you do every year and have been doing for decades. Is there a smaller version of that that you can do in your home or that you can carry with you in your pocket that you take when you travel? Or Such, such a good question, Derek. Thank you. I mean, one thing um, I took me a long time to learn as a writer is my best writing comes when I take a walk. So every day in the normal run of things, I take two walks a day. And I know Steve Jobs did most of his thinking while taking a walk. Bill Gates famously retreats every few months to his version of a Benedictine monster just to read and catch up with the thinking in the world. But it's when I'm walking, then I can really think outside the envelope. When I'm at my desk, I can make outlines and I can deal with all the micro stuff. But it's only when I'm taking a walk that I can think, let me start that book at the end or let me completely reverse everything or let me turn eight chapters into nine chapters. And whatever the project you're working on, I think it's by getting away from the details that you can actually liberate yourself. Um, 
this this New Year's Day, I was going through a really hard time in in California. Um, there was no elect- water at our house. There'd been a forest fire that almost wiped out our house. The electricity wasn't working. My mother was 88 years old and very frail. So I thought, what am I going to do? And because it was New Year's Day, I thought, oh, wait a minute. There's a little kind of retreat house in my hometown. So let me go and just spend an hour. It could have been 30 minutes just sitting in the garden there. And I can't tell you how refreshing that hour. I mean, really, all my troubles fell away in just that one hour in a place 15 minutes from my house. And then when I went back to my house, I somehow really felt renewed and nothing could have. um, When I'm on the treadmill at the health club, I don't turn on the TV. Suddenly I've got kind of a little vacation. I love listening to the radio and podcasts when I'm driving around in California. Sometimes I'll turn um, the radio off and suddenly again, my mind can roam around and sort through what am I going to talk about with Derek or what am I going to do with my wife this evening or whatever it has or how am I going to do redo this article I love taking a shower for that same reason that's when I get a lot of my creative ideas and the fact that so many of us get our creative ideas driving to work or in the shower reminds us well let's make a space for that um, as you said a sort of micro retreat the ultimate luxury is three days in such right. a space but, but three minutes is a help as you said earlier you travel around with Dalai Lama I think you met him when you were just a kid you know, what do you think he would say at the moment? And what do you think he thinks of the situation and the view, the view that we have at the moment of the world? I've actually been um, engaging with his office quite a bit in the last few days. And I saw Pope Francis gave a beautiful message at Easter, which I think is very much what the Dalai Lama would say too. As a Buddhist, he believes that everybody deals with suffering. It's the nature of life that Most of us get sick at some point. If we're lucky, we go through old age and all of us die. So suffering is non-negotiable. But he would say unhappiness is different from suffering. Unhappiness is the position we choose or if we want, cannot choose to bring to the world. He would also say it reminds us of how much we have in common. And right now, two months ago, people were talking about China fighting the United States, Democrats fighting against Republicans. The world has never been so polarized. Now, the situation has reminded us we're all sitting at home. And the Dalai Lama, like Pope Francis, always thinks about the problems, the gulf between the rich and the poor, and he thinks about climate change as our big crisis, I think. Uh, he's been talking a lot about thinking about the long term. I mean, friends of mine have been saying, this is like being in World War II. And I think, like you, Derek, I've been lucky enough in the course of my life, I've never been caught up in a world war. I've never actually been hungry one day of my life. I've never been homeless one day of my life. I've been in a very fortunate position. And we've been in this situation for six weeks now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's similar to five years of world war, sending mm-hmm. your loved ones off probably never to see them again. And this too will pass, every, every Japanese person says. What they say around Kyoto is take care of the mind and you take care of the world. Again, mm-hmm. what I was saying before that Shakespeare says. And what they also say around here is that life is a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. That sorrows are always going to be part of life. But that's a reason not for grief, but actually for finding our joy right now, because we don't know how long our lives will last. And the Dalai Lama, as you know, always speaks about compassion. But I think two of the main things he talks about are interconnectedness and impermanence. That's what this moment is bringing home to every one of us. We can't count on tomorrow, but we're all stitched together. You and I couldn't have had this conversation 14 years ago. Yeah. I know you're uh, not a Buddhist. You don't really ascribe to any uh, religion, I think, unless that's changed. But can you please tell us about your name? Because it's amazing. I just think it's fascinating. 
Well, I, you know, you're right. You really, you, you know more about my life than I do, but so you're right. I'm not a member of any religion. But I, I suppose my luck was both my parents were philosophers uh, and they were from India, but I was born and grew up in England. So they knew Western philosophy as well as Eastern philosophy. So when I was born, they gave me a long, unpronounceable Indian name, but they thought this poor kid is growing up in England. He needs a name that everybody can spell and pronounce. So they gave me this perfect global name, Pico, which is in honor of um, a Renaissance Catholic heretic, Pico della Mirandola, um, who is a philosopher that they both admired. My first name technically is Siddharth, which is the Buddha's name. So my first name is the Buddha's name. Siddharth is my first name. Pico, the <laughs> Catholic heretic, is my second name. My third name is Raghavan, which is my father's name, and he was a theosophist. And my fourth name, Aya, is a very typical uh, South Indian Hindu name. So it took me many, many decades before I realized, wait a minute, my parents were wise. They set me up for this global destiny and global life that many of us are leading by giving me four major religious traditions in the space of my four names. But most of all, this name, Pico, which seems makes me feel like a local everywhere. And um, nobody ever has trouble with Pico. Here in Japan, everyone falls around when they hear the name Pico because it's equivalent to Tweety. It's the name they give to every pet bird. So when I say, hello, my name is Pico, it's as if it's I'm Rover or Tweety or something. But still, they don't have trouble pronouncing it or spelling it. I just think it's fascinating that they, uh, that they chose to string those together. Um, I read somewhere, and again, I'm not sure if it's your words or someone else's, but you can survive without tea, but you can't survive without water. What does that mean? And what does that mean for us uh, today and in relation to what you were just talking about with regards to your name? Well, it actually speaks to exactly what we were just talking about, because that is a quote from the Dalai Lama. And he's distinguishing between kindness and humanity and religion. So he always says religion is a great thing if you can get it. If you've got some religious direction and order and community around you, that's terrific. That's like tea. It's a great luxury and it gives savor and flavor to life. But the thing that nobody can live without with, without is water. And that's just everyday kindness and a sense of responsibility. And one of the great things about the Dalai Lama as a major religious figure is he always says, it doesn't matter if you have religion. You know, two billion people or four billion people in the world don't have religion, no problem. They're as capable of leading a good and purposeful and compassionate life as everyone. Sometimes they live more compassionate lives than, than priests and monks. So, um, you know, he, one of his last major books was titled Beyond Religion. And of course, he's a great believer in science and he only trusts what can be proven in, uh, in a laboratory. And nowadays in labs, they have found um, that acts of kindness, for example, help our immune system. And meditation actually has all kinds of psychological benefits that can be measured and are measured in Stanford and Princeton and Harvard and other universities around the world. Um, so I think the Dalai Lama was just stating, you don't have to get caught up in texts and, and theologies unless you want to, but just think about who you are as a human, who are the people that you can help and what you can do right now. And it doesn't have to get fancy and complicated and theoretical. Uh, just the way water is, is, is something we survive. We don't think about it, but if we don't have it, we're really missing it. And I love the way the Dalai Lama always says, oh, my first teacher was my mother. And that's probably the case with most of us. You know, she's the one who taught us how to be self-sufficient or how to think about others before ourselves or how to not take sweets from strangers, whatever it might be. 
So I think the power of the Dalai Lama lies in the fact he always reminds us of our common humanity and that we're all, we share the same hopes, fears, vulnerabilities. He as much as the rest of us. So it takes us so back to mental questions. If you're happy to take a few. Gladly, yes, absolutely. Um, another one. If you don't follow any religion, do you find your guides for living from proof in the pudding kind of advice? Like, um, how do you... Uh, what works to make you a better person in your own assessment? So good. And of course, a grandmother's wisdom is as good as, as the Pope Francis's wisdom. So the kind of um, proof in the pudding thing, we all know that we assess people much more by their actions than, um, than their words. And when I read about somebody who sees a kid fall down on the subway track and just jumps down to save the kid reflexively, that teaches me as much as something I would get from the Bible and humbles me too. I will say that uh, I really respect the people who do have a religion and mo many of my closest friends and the people I think of as my life teachers are the ones who, because they have a religious commitment, kinder, more self-aware, more humble um, than most of the people that I otherwise run into. But as the questioner suggests, it doesn't have to be that. As somebody who studied literature, I love reading Emily Dickinson and all, all her form of religion probably was for sitting 26 years in a single room and feeling the world very intensely. Um, so I'm happy to learn from the eight-year-olds with whom I play ping pong every day here in Japan. And I'm very happy to learn from Leonard Cohen, whom I got to know quite well, and the Dalai Lama, who had the deepest of religious practices. Okay, I'm going to uh, end with a, a short piece that I love. It's the end of your book, The Art of Stillness. In an age of speed, I began to think Nothing could be more invigorating than going slow. In an age of distraction, nothing can feel more luxurious than paying attention. And in an age of constant movement, nothing is more urgent than sitting still. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. If you like this episode, please share it. And if you haven't yet, go on and push subscribe. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 